Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. If a leader comes in and talks about, I did this and I did that, rather than talking about the teams that they worked with in the past, the reality is, is the work got done by others. And so I think it's critical for uh, more senior people to recognize the importance of an overall team. And part of their job is to help mentor and develop people on the team. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. This episode features a session from our 2022 virtual ELC Summit with Bill Coffrin and Melody McFessel, all about how to leverage your engineering org's strategy to your greatest advantage. They cover topics like how to leverage feature and system simplicity, how to weigh when you should bring insights into your product usage, when to strategically bring in SREs, and how to balance tech debt and refactor work. Bill works as a founders coach and partner at Sequoia Capital to help build spectacular technology-centric companies. Previously, Bill was Senior VP of Engineering at Google with oversight of Chrome, YouTube, Maps, Google.com, underlying infrastructure systems, and security. Melody is the CEO and co-founder of Observable, where she's building the future of data collaboration. She's passionate about helping humans thrive through collaboration, inclusion, and insights. Before Observable, she was a VP of engineering at Google, leading systems with a team of 1,000 plus, where she created the DevOps practice for Google Cloud. This conversation is really special because Bill's inspired and mentored so many folks in the industry, including Melody. And this conversation is another great example of the power of mentorship and paying it forward. So we're really excited to welcome Bill back. Enjoy this conversation with Bill Coffrin and Melody McFessel. Thank you, Patrick. And I want to express my gratitude for having an opportunity to do another one of these sessions. I enjoyed doing the previous one and I look forward to doing this one with my old colleague and friend, Melody McFessel. It's so good to be here with you, Bill. I have to start with some gratitude. I had an opportunity to work with Bill, who's my manager at Google for many years. And I remember many times Bill giving me strong encouragement in my my journey in engineering leadership at Google, encouraging me to do things that I wasn't sure I was capable of doing. <laughs> and it worked out. So I'm really appreciative. And also for your ongoing advice as I am starting my own company and forming a new engineering organization at Observable. Thank you. Thank you for that, Melody. And I think we'll have a broad ranging conversation today. I am engineering is such a complicated discipline with so many moving parts, processes and people and, and so forth. And 
It's so critical to young companies, but also companies as they scale. So it, at least for me, and I thought we could talk about what some of the challenges are with very young companies and also companies as they scale. That sounds great. I have a couple of things that I'd love to get your insight on. Uh, the first one, you know, I've heard you talk in the past about system simplicity and how engineering teams can drive toward kind of the simplest solution possible. But there's this connection that happens with defining the feature <laughs> that you're trying to implement, the thing that you're taking out to your users or your customer base. And I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that feature simplicity bit that can lead to empowering engineering teams to address and look for system simplicity. So I've been thinking about how do we help engineers get as close to the features as possible and encouraging kind of the minimum lovable product and how that can help toward feature simplicity and then system simplicity. But I, it's difficult to talk about that without talking about engineers feeling the pain that users go through. And one of the things that I'd love to hear from you is when you're talking to early stage companies, how do you help the engineering teams and the engineering leaders get close to the friction that users can feel with that first version of the feature? How can we bring more empathy into what's the minimal thing that's going to work that we can then go implement? You know, it's interesting. I, my, I think, general rule is this is easier for consumer companies, companies that are building for consumers as opposed to enterprise companies. And, and I'll talk a little bit about that. You and I got the opportunity to work in and around Google search for a number of years. And the, the engineering teams that were developing and extending and enhancing Google search were very deep experts and got to use the product and understood the product. And so that, that was a big plus. And I think I, I see that mirrored in a number of consumer companies, but also if you think about the company you're leading today, Observable, I think it's quite possible for your engineering team to be able to play with the, and play is the wrong word, but explore the kind of capabilities of the visualization systems and underlying complexity, what is possible and what are interesting visualizations and so forth. I think with enterprise stuff, it gets much harder. The experience I've seen, and I'm on the board of a few enterprise uh, companies for um, Sequoia Capital these days, the companies end up relying very heavily on kind of small internal versions of the systems that they can use to do developer tests and they can explore some of the features and so forth, but they usually are not using the product at full production scale in live instance. And so I think for companies like that, Early on, they're very dependent on their early customers, which we all see the cold design partners these days. And then I think there's incredible reliance on product management and kind of pulling feedback from the field and through product management back into the engineering teams. But it, it is just much more difficult. And as a result, I think a lot of enterprise products end up with quite a bit of complexity. One of the things that I think has changed in the last few years is enterprise buyers are looking for enterprise products that look and feel a lot more like consumer products. And so there's a lot more emphasis on 
user experience, user flow, workflows in the, in the enterprise products and so forth. And that I believe enterprise engineering teams can experience and understand, but it's important. And I think the old model of throwing it up, you build something and you throw it over the fence to the customer and out through your field operations. I think that model has broken down. Yeah, I agree. I think that it is a strategic advantage when you can have the engineering teams be as close to that end user experience, whether it's consumer or it's enterprise as close as possible, because I think they're going to intuitively kind of look for where their optimizations and where their improvements to be made. One idea or one area that I think is really important when engineering teams maybe don't have that closeness and can't bring that advantage of the user experience in is to really look for ways to gain insights into feature usage for those early stage features. So this idea of thinking ahead of time, what are the goals or what are the outcomes we're trying to achieve? It can be from the user perspective. It could also be from the system perspective. So I was curious, you know, for early stage companies, sometimes you'd waste time adding instrumentation and insights when you just should be moving toward product fit, that first version of the platform. What have you found as companies move in stages of their growth and development that you really need to start bringing in that insight and instrumentation into usage so that the engineers just have the data they can look at to make better decisions? I guess I'm a believer that you should put in some instrumentation very early on. Salespeople have a phrase they use, they worry about product becoming shelfware. I think is the first they use where a company agrees to a early trial or a proof of concept. They may even be willing to pay a little bit of money to, to get a product in and then they don't really use it and it sits on the shelf, so to speak. And so I do think having some reporting about at least initializing the product and having people interact with the product is something that should happen fairly early on. It has become, I think, more difficult in this following sense. I think for a, a number of companies now, they often have open source as a, as an early kind of lead gen or trial product. They may rely on open source as a core business component. And generally I would say most developers that I know are not fond of open source that phones home so to speak, and, you know, alerts the, the distributor that somebody's downloaded and actually activated the product. So, so there is some tension in the system, but I would say whenever possible, I would start building fairly coarse instrumentation to get some sense of whether the product's being used. I do think as companies get, you know, their product footprint gets larger, their number of customers get larger and so forth that it's important to add instrumentation, but I would also say companies have to exercise judgment. You may decide to make a major change in the way a product acts, or you want to change the user experience. You need to do that by intuition. You may not be able to completely with experimentation and instrumentation. Yeah, that's, that really resonates. At Observable, our community on our free public platform has been growing. And so as an engineering team, we have ideas of things that might help because we use the product ourselves to dog food. 
And I have to say, when we added instrumentation, we were able a month later or two months later to kind of ask ourselves that question. Is this what we're seeing the users want? Maybe we wanted it, but we were out of touch with how the community wanted to explore data and create visualizations on that. So in some cases, if we added that minimal instrumentation, we were able to fail faster, which is kind of what I want the engineering team's mindset to be because we don't have, you know, we're a small team and we want to work on the things that have the most value for the community. In addition to the instrumentation question, engineering is also a very human, I would say, uh, business. And so one of the things I think is good practice for companies from very early on, but then as they get larger is the, I think whenever possible, it's good to get the developers to listen to customer calls or to meet with customers and get a sense of how the products are being used and what people are experiencing as friction. You were asking me about friction earlier. We get a, a kind of visceral sense in the engineering team about what the day-to-day -day customer experience is and how people are reacting to the product. Because I think one thing I've seen is companies become more successful and larger. The engineering teams tend to be, oh, I would say, overly inwardly focused and somewhat isolated from the market. And I don't think that's an advantage for those companies. I think uh, that, that can actually be pretty harmful. That leads me to another thought idea. When we work together at Google, SRE, Site Reliability Engineering or Operational Engineering, was just forming. And I remember one of the systems that I was working on very disconnected from the customer experience. It was an infrastructure system. But we started to actually support it ourselves and we started to understand, meaning carry a page or be on call, we started to understand where there was fragility or friction in what we were building. And that really changed the engineering team's understanding. I think the same thing is true of user support, having engineers be close to the questions that come up because sometimes they are very straightforward. Like, I, this thing is not working for me. So I'd love to hear what your recommendations are around bringing site reliability engineering in early as an advantage for the engineering team to know where things break and where it's fragile, and also to have that presence in user support in terms of answering questions about what's failing or potentially what's not performing well in terms of overall performance of what the engineering team is building. Yeah, it's interesting. I've advised a number of companies since I left Google about site reliability engineering and what some of the trade-offs are. And different large successful companies, I think, have done this differently. Google, as you're, you know, you mentioned, developed site reliability engineering. They've published books on it. It's sort of led to the enthusiasm around DevOps, I would say, and so forth. Um, but I think other companies have adopted the model that the Development teams should run run their own services. So there's very, I would say, very divergent views on what to do. I I guess my current thinking, having now been away from Google for a number of years, is I do think there is great value to having developers be responsible for the initial production usage of a new product or a new system for some number of months. I often say six months, that's an arbitrary number because you want, I think the development teams to understand what's the behavior of the product or system under load. 
you know, surprisingly enough, if they're responsible for monitoring and alerting, that gets built in fairly early on. And then if it gets handed off, <laughs> it does. And if it gets handed off to an operations team, it doesn't always get done. Yeah, not so much. That's not so much. So I'm a big believer in in letting the developers quote unquote carry the pager for a period of time. I do think SRE, and we certainly saw this at Google, SRE can come alongside a development team as they're launching a new product or you know system and start giving them advice on failure domains, behavior, catastrophic behavior of systems and how to test for that. So bring a number of sort of best practices in, but not take on the direct responsibility early on. And I, I am in favor of that. And so I do think companies fairly early on should develop SREs or a team that understands operations in a deep way that can help development teams. But I do think development teams, at least initially, should carry the responsibility. I think the other thing, and this depends on the age of the company and the, the maturity of the products and systems they have. In a lot of companies, the in an early stage, systems and products are always changing and there's a lot of instability and kind of new things going into and sometimes things coming out of the products and systems. And you don't get to a stable enough state that you want a an operations team, an SRE team to take that. On the other hand, if you've built out some fundamental layers of infrastructure inside your company, those systems may become stable enough and be changing slowly enough that what you really want is careful care and management of those systems. And at that point, it may make sense to have the S an SRE team be the primary party responsible for them. I agree at Observable. I mean, we're an early stage company. We support the site. And I think our community is growing, which means our traffic's growing, which means that we're running into places where we need to learn to scale. And if there's too much distance with the engineering team, I, I just find that we we find something in on-call and we have urgency to fix it because our teammate is going to encounter it in their next on-call rotation. So there's some incentives there that I think create advantages among the engineering team and the culture that you can build. I'm also a big fan of everyone in early stage companies providing user support, whether it's through a forum or a chat or support at, because I think we've become isolated, distanced too much in a vacuum of kind of the day-to-day -day experiences that new users have with the products that we're building. So I'm a big fan of bringing that in as well. And then, yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a decision point in the maturity and growth of a company as to when to start to separate those out to different different engineering sub-teams. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Maybe if I could shift gears a little bit, growing an engineering team is a challenge. <laughs> They tell me recruiting is hard these days, Melody. I've heard 
(laughs) Recruiting is hard these days. When you're moving fast and you're growing a system, especially again, like when you're figuring it out as you go, you're experimenting, you're building prototypes. I have found that I really look for engineers and engineering leaders that bring a sense of self-awareness, that ask questions about what they don't know, when they need to ask for help, owning mistakes when they make them as just a really important attribute in terms of continuous improvement. And this plays out in the observable culture and how we do retrospectives or we do postmortems that we're constantly trying to learn because from my perspective, software engineering, like it's never done. And if you're doing it and moving quickly, you're going to make mistakes. And so I found that I'm, when I look for new engineers and engineering leaders, particularly, I really am kind of trying to understand that kind of curiosity and self-awareness. And I found that's become more and more important in terms of the, the growing the team. So yeah, I'd love to hear what are the attributes that you're finding that are really important to look for in new hires and in recruiting these days for engineering teams? So I've said this in other contexts and at uh, risk of repeating myself for people who may have heard me say, say some of this before. I, particularly if you bring someone in as either a senior individual contributor or somebody who will be a formal leader manager of a, of a group, when I interview those people, I tend to listen to choice of pronouns. And and by that, I I certainly mean some of the current debates over pronouns, but more of if a leader comes in and talks about, I did this and I did that, rather than talking about the teams that they worked with in the past. For example, my name is associated with a number of large projects that Google did a number of years ago. But I didn't do any of that work. I helped to organize some of the teams and maybe I commissioned some of the work and so forth. But the reality is, is the work got done by others. And so I think it's critical for uh, more senior people to recognize the importance of an overall team. And, and part of their job is to help mentor and develop people on the team. One of, one of the things I always tell leaders is one of your most important jobs is to work yourself out of a job. You should be developing, finding people who can replace, and maybe it's not a one-for-one replacement, but that's the kind of thing you should do. I do worry sometimes when I interview people that they're too egocentric. And what I look for, and you've alluded to this in your question, is people who are intellectually curious and want to do different things. Once again, reflecting on my own career journey, when I joined Google in early 2003, frankly, I hardly knew what a web service was. And I suspect that was very obvious to some of the people who spoke to me before I joined Google. We got, so I sort of understood web services pretty well. And I think if you're intellectually curious and you have the intellectual breadth, you can pick up lots of things. I think it's your ability to question and develop new understanding that's key to leadership, in my opinion. I agree with that. I find that in early stage engineering, new features that are not out in the market yet, we're developing them. There's a lot of creativity and curiosity that has to come into that. And the other side of that is risk. You taking risks and being okay to fail and to keep going. 
And I think that's what I found is a big part of successful engineering leadership and engineering teams is that that capacity, but also that joy to keep going, even in the face of something that didn't work out. You want to keep learning, you want to keep growing. So that part, I think, is uh, it's just important to build in no matter what stage of development the, the engineering team is. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and I think you're making an important point. I, in, a, in an organization where you're high, hiring people that are creative and highly qualified, you want to give them some room to try and yeah. fail. You know, there's a limit to everything, right? I mean, if somebody fails multiple times, at some point you may decide you have to move them out of the business. But, you know, the reality is I think you need a, a fairly open attitude to letting people try things and make mistakes and learn from the mistakes. And the important thing is to watch whether they learn from the mistakes. Yeah, I think it is. It's a balance of autonomy and especially in the world we're in now where there's a lot of remote development, how we help people stay connected to get the support that they need, I found is there's a lot of adaptation going on <laughs> in terms of changing how we think about engineering, a lot of pairing, a lot of just creating space for open-ended discussions, a lot of kind of ad hoc meetups to get folks connected to say, oh, I'm trying to learn this thing. I don't know how to do it. Can we pair program a little bit together as a way for me to learn? Because it's going to be, it's going to, it's going to take a long time and it's not going to be as much fun to try and do that on my own. So I think finding that balance of autonomy and also like support to try those new things and, and learn along the way. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The world we're now living in where everything is one of these video tiles or frequently is a video tile. It's a different world. One, one thing that is definitely comes up in, in the engineering team and observable is finding the balance around managing tech debt and refactoring. And so I know this is not like the, the exciting topic, but it is something that's that's on everyone's mind because we are moving as we are moving pretty fast. We're releasing every day. Um, we're moving quickly. And we've had to find a balance within the team of how we talk about refactoring, like what's needed in refactoring. And one of the one of the things that we've started talking about is what is the outcome we're trying to achieve? How can we talk about, okay, if we do this right now, it means we're not doing feature development. So we have to make this trade-off. But is the outcome that we're agreeing that we're gonna shoot for worth it? And most times we try and start with what's the user-facing outcome that we're gonna get. And that can be really motivating for engineers to do that refactoring because, oh my gosh, we're gonna speed up the user experience by X amount. We just haven't looked at this piece of code or optimize it at the scale of usage that we're seeing before. So I was just curious, like, <laughs> it's such a balance and there's never really a good time to do this work. You have to have a way to talk about it and then do it. So I'm curious, what are founders or engineering leaders saying when they come to you? Oh my gosh, we're drowning in tech debt. Well, it's certainly a common problem. And you're right. I would say a lot of companies are trying to release versions more often and move faster. And for a very young company in a very early stage, like a seed stage company, you know, the reality is I don't think you can spend any time on tech debt. You you have to try to figure out whether you have something that the market will actually want. And so spending a lot of time on hygiene, as much as I might like to say it's a good idea, I don't think I don't think you have the resources to do that. I would say once a company starts to have engagement, 
you know, the users and so forth, you, you need to start, I would say leadership needs to start thinking about tech debt. And what I've seen in a number of companies that I've advised over the last few years is many of them start, end up with a large monolithic code base that gets harder and harder to build and release. And so they often go through major refactoring or re-architecting or, you know, building second systems and so forth. And they try to break things. I think most common model of late has been to go to microservices and try to have independent releases of pieces and so forth. But I would say companies have to start allowing a percentage. Uh, my sense is it often ends up being 20% of the engineering effort is lost to just dealing with tech debt and trying to, you know, deal with legacy code issues and so forth. I don't know that there's any particular one solution or one model that works, but I think companies need to figure it out and do what makes sense for them. It does lead to a big risk, which is the often engineers enjoy starting a new project and building a new thing to replace an old thing. Sometimes that's necessary. But other times you end up with what, you know, is called second system syndrome, where you end up building something that's too complicated and doesn't really, you know, fit the need. And so I often encourage companies to try to think about, can they refactor existing code and make use of what they have rather than lurching off and building a new, a new version of something or new something. And a lot of it depends on the company, right? I mean, Google. In the years I was there, the, the company built a number of very large and complicated new systems, but also the core business just generated free cash flow. There was no tomorrow. And so it gave you flexibility to have a number of parallel projects and efforts underway at a given time. Other companies may not be able to afford that. Yes. Especially startup companies that are growing. Yeah. Let's Business leaders have to think through what can the, what does the company absolutely need to do? What's important for the customer and what can the business deal with? And so it's more than an engineering decision at that point. It is. I do think though, that there's a way that you can bring into the engineering culture to think about the user experience, which goes back to where we started this conversation. We launched this feature and we're seeing usage increase and the performance is degrading just because we didn't know in that first version, what was going to happen. And so I do think that there's a, a kind of like a virtuous loop that you want to bring into the engineering team to think about that evolution based on, based on the community or the customer value, like how much they're using it. The second thing is, I also think it's important to think about as teams grow, as companies go through kind of step function growth on the engineering team, where the places where are risking it, you know, the most risk in the code base and try to find ways in the work that's already being done to, to add more time or buffer to refactor those. Because as new engineers come on and they need to get into a piece of code and it's just, wow, very, either very few people know it or it's just too complicated and needs to be refactored. I think that to me is a motivation of, okay, we need to take a little bit of time and address this. You make good points. I think the other thing that often companies uh, don't fully understand is 
the importance of code that's written in a way so that the somebody other than the original coder could pick it up and modify it. The the Go language was created during my started during my tenure at Google, and part of the goal there was to create a language system that would, I think, be easier to main, have code maintenance and for new people to come in and be able to learn and understand a, a, uh, an existing piece of code and then be able to modify it. I have seen a lot of companies in the last few years that end up with archaeological expeditions in the code that hasn't been touched for a while, trying to understand what does it really do? What are some of the second, you know, side effects that we don't fully understand that the existing code and systems, to, you know, provide. And that can happen in early stage companies too. Uh, it's, it's been known to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. I would love to hear what your recommendations are for building human-first, mentoring-first engineering teams and cultures. I think it's so important. Humans, people, you mentioned this before, are writing all the software in the world or the majority of the software in the world. So how can we as engineering leaders really put that first in how we build teams? And then good things can come from that. Melody, you don't believe this concept that AI is going to be writing all the code here in 2025? That's a skeptic. I'm such a skeptic. Maybe not quite yet. You know, you know it's interesting. I, I think one of the things that I have thought about over the years is, and I've been quoted in various contexts, I do think it's incredibly important for, you know, senior people in engineering roles, either as leaders or individual contributors, they, they need to be able to think about the people around them. What are the things that are worries for those people? What are things, you know, those people have concerns about their career development. They want to become better software engineers. They want to become better leaders and so forth. I think it's very important to create a culture where part of the expectation of people in leadership roles, either once again, as individual contributors or as formal managers. They, they need to, part of the expectation is they should be ex expected to be managers, not managers, but mentors, people who develop other people and who think about other people. It, it's interesting. I started my career at Bell Labs many years ago, and I one of the patterns I saw that I didn't think worked, uh, at least in some cases, was the very best technical people got promoted into formal management jobs. And sometimes they're not particularly good at thinking through people issues. And, you know, some of the dynamics that occur naturally in organizations. And so to me, when I've thought about people taking on more and more senior roles and taking on more and more leadership roles, Finding people who are balanced between their technical skills, but also have some ability to understand the dynamics of the people around them and help develop them. And I think setting expectations inside a company and inside an engineering organization, that's the archetype for leaders. And I think it ends up with much better execution. I think you end up with better morale and kind of esprit de corps. And I think it's very important for a successful organization. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. I think it gets back to what we talked about before around people having some level of autonomy and also having the support to ask the questions that they need to get answers to or 
to have assistance as they're working through those new, you know, those new topics that they haven't, they just haven't implemented yet. So yeah, creating that environment is, is so important for successful engineering teams. Thank you for all of your wisdom, Bill. It is always a joy. I always learn when we get a chance to talk to each other. So thank you. Thank you very much for doing this, Melody. And once again, thank you to the organizers here that we got an opportunity to have a go. So thank you. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.